0: Welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that critically analyzes some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing with our mini season on The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. And this is our sixth episode, which is going to be covering chapters 18 through 20. So to remind you all what happened in these chapters, Chris is going to give us a recap.
1: It starts with Snow and Tigress worrying about losing their apartment with the new tax coming out. In the games, Tributes start to die, and Reaper begins placing and covering their bodies, and Lucky continues the interviews of the Mentors and of Dean Highbottom on the new interactivity of the games. Snow finds out that Dr. Gall's snakes will be used as retribution for Gaius Breen's death, and so he uses his handkerchief to help Lucy Gray survive that attack. He goes to the plinths and does not receive any money for helping to save Sejanus's life. Good. Sorry. (laughs) He writes an essay about contract control and chaos. The snakes are set into the arena where they attack And Lucy Gray sings and is protected. Lucy Gray manages to poison Reaper and wins the games. And Snow starts to celebrate, but is ultimately found out for all of his rule breaking and is forced to join the Peacekeepers.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: Yeah. So we do have a quote about one of the things I mentioned. This is as the tributes start to kill each other and to die, and something that happens in chapter 18 as Reaper decides what to do with their bodies.
0: After walking around them for a time, he lifted Lamina up, carried her over to where Bobbin and Marcus lay, and arranged the three in a row on the ground. For a while, he paced around the beam and then dragged Tanner over beside Lamina. Over the next hour, he collected first dill and then soul, adding them to his makeshift morgue.
1: Yeah, I think this is a, a really interesting aspect of what it means to be a tribute, because, you know, Reaper, before the game started, he he apologized about having to kill everyone, and he clearly does feel empathy for the other people while he also understands that this death is necessary, but he doesn't just kind of allow those deaths to happen and for the bodies to lay untended to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I started to find him to be a really interesting character and Mm. I found myself liking him more and more. There's so much that we don't know about him because Mm -hmm. like you said, initially he told everyone he was sorry he had to kill them. But then he never actually killed anyone and mm-hmm. tried to just stay off by himself. He protected Dill as much as he could. I mean, she was dying, but he stayed with her and then seems to be giving the other tributes who have been killed a burial of sorts. And. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of comments that are made about like how strange he is and stuff, you know, and he puts, puts the flag on like a cape and I wasn't sure if they were alluding to maybe some potential mental health issues. I'm not really sure, but he is so fixated on this job of, you know, lining up the dead tributes that that's one of the ways that Lucy Gray ends up being able to win. And so, yeah, I wasn't sure if that was just a fixation. I wasn't sure if that was him just wanting to feel useful at the end of all things. Mm. Yeah, it was just really interesting. And it was, for me, it was this really heartbreaking moment when he finally is dying and got himself over to the line of dead tributes as, as if, like, his final act was not only to be in solidarity with them, but also almost in sort of like a fellowship of not dying alone.
1: Absolutely. The one thing that was odd for me was Snow calling it a morgue, because Mm -hmm. a morgue sounds so clinical, and this seemed much more like there's there's an honoring here involved. It's Mm -hmm. not just about storing bodies, but it's about, I think, treating them in a humane way that the capital refuses to do.
0: And gives them some dignity like so the last mm. time their family and friends see them on screen they're not contorted lying on the ground and there's like animals trying to eat their body.
1: Right open wounds you know. Yeah, yeah. they're
0: given as peaceful a ending as possible for at least the last moments they're ever seen.
1: Yeah yeah absolutely.
0: Well, I guess we should probably move into our first impressions. Mm-hmm. So I limited myself to one, which is very difficult. <laughs> but I wanted to talk about how the whole snake charmer thing with Lucy Gray in the arena initially hit me as kind of, like, it rubbed me the wrong way a bit because I was like, ah, is this mm. an exoticized stereotype trope? So I decided to do a little research and found out that the Kalbelia people group in the Rajasthan state of northern India, which is actually one of the areas in northern India where the Romani originated, Hmm. actually have a dance that replicates the movements of a serpent. Hmm. And that seems to be what she was kind of doing while she was dancing and singing. And then the serpent started coming to her. Hmm. And according to Wikipedia, citing my sources here, uh, (laughs) this people group have traditionally lived on the outside of villages and have moved from village to village as snake handlers and traders of snake venom. Hmm. now they the performing arts are a major source of income for them, as well as like working agriculture
1: hmm.
0: and when I was looking at this, I noticed like some of their traditional dress is very brightly colored, so as somebody who's not a part of these groups, <laughs> I'm currently okay with it, I guess if and only if the movie casts an actor who's actually has northern indian ancestry and obviously keeps their complex character and probably they need to consult with some people from rajasthan for making the film but if all those boxes are ticked then uh, i'd probably be pleased because this isn't something i even knew anything about Mm. but i mean obviously like me being pleased with this is not the goal. <laughs> it would be if, like, South Asians or South Asian Americans would be pleased with it based on this representation. But, so help me God, if they cast a white girl, it's <laughs> just straight up appropriation, and I will lose it and be very disappointed in Collins. So hopefully that will not happen. Yeah,
1: yeah. It, I, I. I don't know much about the kind of history or or even the geographic range of snake charming and those kinds of practices outside of South Asia. So that's really interesting and definitely something I think that that hopefully the producers of this film are as motivated to research and do their due diligence as we are when we're just making a podcast about it.
0: Uh, No, hopefully they're way more. Yeah, right? (laughs) Because again, I consulted Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that was my first impression. What about you? Yeah,
1: very interesting. Yeah, I think for me, the biggest impression I got was from Dean Highbottom's quote about how the interactivity of the games makes it so that they're all in the games now. I thought that quote was was so powerful because from what we've seen and heard so far of the games these these first 10 years, they lack so much of the pedagogy of the later games, which I've talked about in our previous Hunger Games episodes, but pedagogy meaning basically science of learning and teaching, and pedagogy in a social context can mean the way that ideals and philosophies and beliefs are kind of handed down in a society. And the Hunger Games, by the 74th and 75th games, are so much about teaching the people of the capital where they stand, and teaching the people of the districts where they stand as well, but the capital are engaged so directly there, and and it is so all-encompassing in their culture and their lives, at least as we see it in those books. We don't see that here yet, and I think it's really interesting to have these games be the genesis of that, where now they're being used more and more starting with the you know the bedding and the the delivery of food as a way of controlling and managing and instilling ideas and beliefs into the capital citizens as well and so you know we've talked in the past about how snow has been a piece in the games as a mentor but i think that this interactivity sees how the games are including more and more people and not in a equal way. It is not like they are democratically being part of the planning of the games, really. They are still, even as viewers or consumers or betters or sponsors, pieces in developing what those who are actually at the top of it, what what they're trying to do. You know, coming into the books, I wasn't necessarily sure how I felt about seeing earlier games, and, and now I think that Seeing this as an origin story of, of the way the games interact with a capital is really, really fascinating. And that's what I'm really getting out of these chapters in particular.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I found that really interesting too. And it was reminding me of social control and like how hmm. our social narratives promote the American ideal of having mm-hmm. a home and car and 2.5 kids and like... You know, how that leads to massive debt, which obviously the wealthiest sector of society benefits from. Meanwhile, the goods and services that are what American families use and want, and those are almost all always made on the backs of people of color in mm. sweatshops in other countries.
1: Absolutely. Not to mention the myth of the meritocracy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like... It's just a new way because the Roman Empire was encouraging people to have kids so that they would have more workers and more soldiers. Mm. So it, it's the same type of thing. It's just in our modern day context, and it's like that too, for even the capital because for them, it's about the latest trends and parties and all of those things. So it's 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 just a different social narrative that we're fed to benefit few.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, well, that's, I guess, a good transition into our next segment, which is our touch points, where we see the issues being raised in this book and how they connect to living in our world.
0: So I have three, but one is small. So I'll start with that. It was just a great slash terrible moment when Snow's going to meet High Bottom at the end of this segment and this is after Lucy Gray wins Mm -hmm. and he's thinking that maybe he wants to congratulate him or apologize for abusing (laughs) him and it just reminded me so much of white supremacy and patriarchy Mm. so it's like when you aren't given preferential treatment you feel like it's abuse Mm. so I just had to Make a mention of that.
1: That's so Uh, good,
0: yes. (laughs) And then my second one is that this whole chaos control contract that Snow is thinking about as he's writing his paper. Yeah, it's interesting because I actually kind of agree with those things, but in such a different way. Because those beliefs make me a socialist. (laughs) Hmm. Because I think that not only will desperation cause people to do brutal, terrible things. But people, even without any desperation in their life at all, will also do horrendous things because of their greed or lust for power. And so an economy without strict regulations leads to egregious wealth disparity, healthcare disparity, etc. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's all of the institutionalized racism, ableism, misogyny, etc. as well. And so, I agree with the ideas, but the control would be in such a different way. And the social contract would be in such a different way that's like, everybody should have what they need. And also, people who already have what they need but are going to do terrible things anyway aren't allowed to do that <laughs> hmm. so it's yeah it was just interesting because he and Dr. Gall a 180 from what they think doesn't necessarily lead to equity or a lack of oppression hmm. because that's what you have in the United States and we're all messed right.
1: up yeah, so. like libertarianism is not helpful to creating a just world either
0: yeah uh, and then my last one was part of what you mentioned earlier about the flag and when we were talking about Reaper, putting it over the bodies of, of the dead tributes. Mm-hmm. It said that Reaper jogged across the arena, climbed up to the flag of Penem. He pulled out his long knife and stabbed through the heavy fabric. Loud objections came from the audience in the hall. This disregard for the sanctity of the national flag shook them. Surely this should not go unchecked. Mm-hmm. That just really reminded me of how offended people sometimes get if I say like I'm anti-nationalistic or I'm not patriotic or I don't say the pledge of allegiance and people seem to think that it's a personal affront to them. Mm. And I was thinking about it and I'm like I don't know maybe you know a- away, it sort of is, like, if I'm standing against their value systems, and I don't believe the narratives that they believe are true, which are obviously, when you get down to it, in the case of the U.S. at least, uh, patriarchy, white supremacy, and imperialism, you know, even if they're disguised by other things, and so, yeah, I just, I love how this boy with dark brown skin drives a knife right into the Pan Am flag. (laughs) Mm -hmm. and he just and he does it again and again as more panem kids are killed and or district kids are killed i should say and it's just so symbolic of his non-compliance and his lack of reverence for the panem that exists only because of the subjugation of the districts and the whole country you know only eats because of the subjugation of his district yeah, I just, I love it. And I love how he showcases that all wearing a superhero cape.
1: Yeah, I, I, that was absolutely one of the main touch points I got from this chapter as well. Because I think that you hit on all all the really salient points. And in addition, we see that, yeah, him him putting his knife into a flag creates a, a, a worse effect or a larger effect in the capital citizens, than tributes putting knives in each other.
0: Mm-hmm. It's something that
1: that this type of patriotism and nationalism can be so overwrought. You know, for example, I remember when I have looked into, like, debate formats and, and topics and things like that, and one of the big ones that always comes up is flag burning in the United States is a First Amendment rights issue. There's this debate construed around it just because people who adhere to the flag feel that it should be illegal to burn it. So people who probably would be, you know, at least in theory, completely pro the First Amendment in any other situation, but this is where it goes too far. When it's attacking a symbol, not necessarily when it's hate speech or when it's people who are gathering together to commit racial violence and or to uphold white supremacy like those. That's just First Amendment rights. But burning the flag, that's a problem. And obviously, it's a a really nuanced conversation. And I don't mean to say that it's not. But I think this just really reminded me of how that symbol can mean more to some people than the lives of those living underneath it. And that's absolutely seen in the reactions by the capital citizens.
0: Yeah, you're totally right. It's our flag is more sacred than the lives of these people. Yeah. Because basically, it upholds our own supremacy over them.
1: Yeah. And the mythology that people adhere to.
0: Oh, absolutely. Because most people don't want to admit that they come from Genocide, tragedies, enslavement, or that even some of their ancestors have done these Mm -hmm. things. Or that they're coming from a country right now that is still oppressing people within the country and also people outside the country. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I guess we should move on to our Back to the Future segment.
1: Yeah, this is a segment where we look at the Ballad of Songbird and Snakes through the prism of the original Hunger Games books. Why don't you go first?
0: Okay, yeah. So after Lucy Gray essentially hypnotized the snakes in the arena, Lucky Flickerman then tells Dr. Gall to take a bow. Mm -hmm. And I was just automatically thinking that she is not going to like it, that a girl from District 12 basically nullified her mutts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just reminded me how much... The Capitol hates looking like a fool. For example, they hated how Haymitch used force field as a weapon. Yeah, They hated how Katniss forced Seneca Crane to choose between either having no victor or going back on their rule. Mm-hmm. So then I feel like it's just adding insult to injury for her because Lucy Gray almost completely commandeered the retribution that was supposed to be being exacted on the tributes for Gaius Preen uh, having died from the arena bombing. And so it it was definitely just giving a very ominous feel Mm. (laughs) to, yeah, nothing good lies in wait for Lucy Gray when she gets out. I mean, obviously things were going to be ridiculously hard anyway because of the trauma. But if you're on Dr. Gall's bad side. There's just no... No way out. <laughs> mm. So, um... Yeah, that's not looking bright and sunshiny. So we'll see what happens in the next segment.
1: Yeah, and I wonder if, if this is where that idea of tributes still being used by the Capitol afterwards starts, where Lucy Gray can't just go back to her life after this, right? Not after doing that to the Capitol.
0: Well, and... They like her. Yeah. The Capitol likes Lucy mm. Gray. If it had been any other tribute before, we don't know anything about them. They don't have clothes that they smuggled out to get washed and pressed. Mm. They don't have a specific talent so they can sing. And oh, here's the guitar to use. You know, it's. They've also been semi convinced, or some of them have been semi convinced by Snow that it's like, oh, she's like one of us. So. You can't necessarily just kill her. Mm. So yeah, maybe we can use her in some other way. Yeah. So that's just lovely. The second one that I had is that during an interview with Lucky Flickerman, Dean Highbottom said that the landscape of the arena changed because of the bombing. Mm. And so that's obviously, I think, what leads to the games adopting a much more intriguing feel for viewers also that allowed for tributes to win that weren't just from the career districts Mm. right because otherwise it's only going to be the biggest the best fed all of those types of things so it did really transform the games and so they start building these massive arenas which i can only imagine is ridiculously costly and time-consuming So I was just, like, thinking about what they do with the old arenas after. And I could totally just see them, the capital, like, turning them into amusement parks or something. And... And Don't
1: they mention that they actually do that? Do they? Maybe that just is so what they would do that it sounds
0: I don't know if they...
1: But I think that if they so, mentioned they do that. so, I've
0: missed that before. Because I can just totally see them, you know, going on an excursion. To, it's like, oh, it's the 74th Hunger Games Arena. Like, look, that's where Peeta and Katniss almost took the Nightlock berries. Yes, like, exactly. Let's take a selfie here, you know. Like, that's exactly what would happen. Um, so, yeah, I was just... Very much this is an evolving arena, which has such a huge part to play in how the games play out.
1: Yeah, yeah. The changes of this game, both intentional and not intentional, I think are so important to what later games will come. And and even if we don't see those conversations happening, now that we've seen a few of them happen with betting and things like that being discussed it's so much easier to imagine how those kinds of incremental changes might occur.
0: Absolutely, yeah. But what about you? What are are your back to the future thoughts?
1: Well, the other thing that we had a first of in these games, or at least so it seems, are the first mutts being used in the games.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: by the time of the 74th Hunger Games... The muds are so established that it just seems like more of the kind of environment, that the environment is one that is dangerous and that that is going to help increase entertainment value by shepherding tributes into areas and situations that will be more entertaining to watch. Mm -hmm. But here, I think that there's a much more kind of pronounced idea of where they literally say this is a lesson to the districts. So, yeah, I think it's very interesting to to see that here, but then also to think about how those who are betting on this might have reacted to that, because certainly they probably want to see retribution or what have you, but they also may feel cheated because they put money on just the situation as they knew it, not on the kind of randomness that the mutts brought. Are they going to be so enamored with the added entertainment value that it will overcome any issues they have with money they put forward on on their their bets.
0: Yeah, and and who is betting on this? Obviously rich people, but are there any other people in the capital who could be a family more like the Snows and they were hoping that this could allow them to be able to pay their property taxes. Not that that makes it okay in any way, but
1: right. yeah. Well, and yeah, and you know, thinking about our society, with the lottery at least, it's much more likely for people of lower incomes to participate in the lottery than those in higher incomes. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I wonder how that would affect things societally.
0: For sure, yeah.
1: Well, since we have gotten to the end of another part of the book, part two, The Prize, why don't we revisit some of the characters that we've been reading about and kind of seeing the the arcs of their growth and their narrative so far? We should probably start with Coriolanus Snow.
0: Yeah, so it's been interesting because when he put that handkerchief in the mutt snake tank it seemed like he was he was motivated by compassion for lucy gray because he was imagining her dying because of these and like her body convulsing on the ground and the same thing happening to her that happened to clemencia then on the next page he questions if it was because he wanted to win or it was because he didn't want her to die Mm -hmm. it's interesting that that he is questioning that at least in in that moment he's self-aware enough to know that Both of these things are motivating for him. But it did seem like he was thinking of her in that moment because he didn't think about in that other way until the next page. And that doesn't mean, oh, he's always thinking of her or he's always compassionate because obviously we already know that that's not true.
1: Or that that compassion, it isn't also kind of formed on top of selfishness.
0: Well, and we do already know that it's only towards certain people that he particularly likes. Mm Mm-hmm. But also, I thought it was very telling that at the end of the games, he's thinking he'd won glory and a future and maybe love too. And I was just like, those are exactly his priorities in order. Mm-hmm. Glory, living, <laughs> then love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> love would be last. So yeah, he uh, he's he's definitely complex. And I think he does have a really interesting moment when he's realizing, like, oh, am I cheating just because I want to win? And what else might I be capable of? What has to stop now? If he didn't have his honor, he had nothing. No more deception. No more shady strategies. No more rationalization. And obviously that does not stick. Mm -hmm. Then he wants to go try to manipulate the plinths for money. So I don't know if he's only thinking that this applies to people he sees as his equal or mm. yeah, it's it's interesting to see that he had that motivation at some point in time and then obviously he goes on to poison his way to keep power forever. And who knows, might be even gain power.
1: Yeah, that that whole sequence I think is one of the most compelling dives into his character because We see him really conversing with himself in a way that we don't see a lot of Mm -hmm. because he he seems so self-assured and so ardent in the way that he sees himself and his place in the world. But I think this shows that he really doesn't know himself very well. He is arrogant in the way that he perceives himself because he says no more rationalizations and no more dishonesty but his whole life is built on dishonesty (laughs) right and that he'll he'll be a principled beggar but he won't manipulate or lie i guess anymore and then immediately goes to the plinths as you said and, and that's just so patently untrue and i don't know if he has another way of interacting with the world and i don't now know if he has another way of interacting with himself other than that To convince himself of certain things and take so much stock in his own competence, which he clearly has, but to not understand how he's affected by his emotions or his desires to fit in with society. Where he can't just say that he's going to stick by his principles now, because I don't know if he understands really what those principles are, and I certainly don't think that he's prepared to give up all the status that comes with the manipulation and the lies that he's built his his life upon.
0: I mean, he, he definitely isn't. And if he were to be more honest and humble, maybe he wouldn't have had to worry as much about winning that prize. I mean, obviously, you should try to get Lucy Gray out of the arena. But if he went to the plinths and just honestly said this is our situation we're going to get kicked out mm-hmm. is there anything you could do but he would never do that mm-hmm. you know he he could never ask these district people for something and he can't even ask his capital so-called friends you know some of the families aren't as financially precarious mm-hmm He has other options, but his pride and his image is more important than these other things that he cares some amount about, because he wouldn't be having those thoughts if he didn't care about it at all, Mm. but not enough for it to ever win out.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: I also, I had something that I, I think shows a nice juxtaposition between, um, Corylanis and Sejanus, and then we can move into Sejanus. I was just thinking about when Corylanis is interviewed after Lucy Gray wins. And he says that the experience was both exhilarating and humbling. And when I read that, I just like could not help but think what Sejanus would have said if Marcus <laughs> had won, and he was the one being interviewed. That would have been just 180 <laughs> from the interview that Snow gave and you see Snow struggling with sometimes thinking some of these things are unjust or even seeing like, Lucy Grace not even going to make it to the arena because they're not even feeding her or seeing Marcus strung up and saying, how could they do this to a boy? Like his only crime was trying to run away from the arena. Mm-hmm. So he, he's not even 100% okay with everything. And, and he's not okay with how he killed Bobbin either. Mm-hmm. Yet, when interviewed, this is what he decides to say, and the statements he decided to say about Guys Preen, you see him making these choices, whereas things don't sit well with Sejanus, and even if it's going to put him at extreme risk and kill him or lead to his torture or whatever the capital might do to him, it doesn't matter because Hmm. speaking out is more important. And so, yeah, it was just... I mean, obviously, I wanted Lucy Gray to get out of there, but, ugh, I want to hear Sejanus's interview so much.
1: Yeah, Sejanis' continued prioritizing of what he thinks is right is so powerful. Yeah. And so necessary in a book like this. And one thing that this part and these chapters this week, actually really helped to spell out for me also was how he clearly got a lot of this from his mom because Mm -hmm. she mentions how she likes to bake custards for the avoxes because it's their favorite since they don't have tongues
0: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: that is just such a powerful and compassionate statement considering the life that they live in the capital and i think that her compassionate ways clearly rubbed off on him. The other thing I I was really impressed by with her was when Snow comes over and she's like, oh, I can serve you some tea in the kitchen. Oh, unless you want it out here the way that I was served it in your home, Mm -hmm. where she clearly doesn't know. And she's judged by Snow for not knowing. But in either way, she's trying to be hospitable and she's trying to learn. She's trying to know when she doesn't know something and she's open to that and that's such a brave and powerful thing to do that snow looks down on
0: well and she was making food for sejanus to take to the tributes
1: yeah yeah
0: and when dr gall was making snow go into the arena to get him she was like oh no like he shouldn't go like i should go Mm. because let's not put another person at risk so principles they they both have them yeah yeah obviously sejan is more so i mean at least in a more outspoken way
1: yeah i can't imagine him even living in a home with avoxes if it was his choice
0: i know Ugh. we'll see what happens but it was interesting to see that he seems to be going into more of a depression and mm-hmm. having to take tranquilizers to be able to sleep yeah, I'm interested to see how all of these things are going to affect him in this next part.
1: Yeah, I hope that he, he continues to play an important role. He better. <laughs> well, we should probably also talk about Lucy Gray.
0: Um, of course we should.
1: And I think that for me, one of the big changes that we see in this part from her is her desire to be taken seriously, but also her at least seeming romantic relationship with Snow. Mm -hmm. Which we've talked about in the past is, yeah, that that is headache inducing because it's a character who I respect, (laughs) who at least seemingly is having romantic feelings for a character who I do not respect. (laughs) And so much of it, I'm thinking, if her feelings are genuine... How much would she continue to have those if if she could hear his thoughts the way that we can? Or even if she goes back and sees the interviews that he had, where he talks about her as almost district, as sharing the values of the capital more than the district, and all these ways that are so dehumanizing to everything that she has experienced in her life, Mm -hmm. but is trying to elevate her specifically. And I think it, it shows how much he idealizes her both in the games and I think in his head. And I can't imagine that she would take that well. But then on the other hand, I'm worried that seeing as how he is now essentially going into the Peacekeepers as punishment for the ways that he helped her, I worry that she will see that as him ultimately sacrificing for her or being punished for helping her. And though there's an element of truth to that, it's also very nuanced by the fact that he was always doing what he wanted and what would best help him.
0: But also, I don't know, it's hard because sometimes when you've been treated so badly by everyone, not only individual people, but also society, it can be hard to think you have any better options Mm. or not take the marginal kindnesses somebody gives you rather than holding them to the standard they should be held to. That's so true. So, I don't know. I mean, I'd like her to be super empowered and just be like, no, you jerk. <laughs> like, or other words, but we don't want explicit ratings on this podcast. So. <laughs> uh, but we'll see. Also something that, to me, from part one we got to see her have a ton of social intelligence. Mm. And it was really cool to see in part two how she also has this strategic intelligence Mm. as well, where she kept a snake mutt secretively. Nobody knew. And she rinsed the poison out of her bottle into a puddle like in a way that nobody would have noticed Mm -hmm. what happened and you know she tired reaper out so that he would drink from the puddle before it dried up and so she definitely has this other strategic intelligence that we didn't get to see as much of before so i thought that was really great and i mean she even knew where the mics were somehow mm. so that she could sing her song where she could be heard by the capitol so she is a very smart and savvy a young lady she
1: absolutely is yeah
0: which i loved but also a different change i think we see in her is that she did kill yeah and she had said before, I don't know that I would.
1: Maybe like, only in self-defense. Maybe in self-defense, yeah.
0: exactly. And
1: what she did to Reaper was not self-defense. It was manipulation. It was strategic and cunning, but mm-hmm. it, was, it was using something that he held as sacred, which was, you know, as we discussed, giving memorial to these dead tributes and using that against him. And that's cold in a way that I am curious to see how that is going to affect her. That she found out that that's what she's capable of.
0: I'm super curious about that too because you could say it came down to them too. Mm-hmm. And she was like, well, I'm gonna make the choice now. This poison is the only possible way for me to win. But obviously she poisoned that other girl. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if part of it was just once she was in the games, then she came face to face with dying and also came face to face with the closeness of not dying, Mm. that that this is actually possible, that she changed her mind, or the fact that there's something easier about poison because it's distant, Mm. and you don't have to stab the sword into someone or hit someone's head in with a plank of wood. It can feel more passive, even though it still is killing someone. Mm. But also, you see that her care was still there, she did use what Reaper was finding sacred, but then after he died, she also put the flag over him Yeah, to continue his practice, so...
1: <sighs> yeah. So, hopefully, like Sejanus, we'll also see lots more from her, and, and I'd love to see more of her reflection on what's happened. We we didn't get any of her interiority while, she, while we were seeing the games from Snow's perspective, and... I hope that we get some of that, at least in reflection, as we go forward to the last part of the book.
0: Yeah, for sure. Oh, these books. <laughs> well, let's take a look at what we're going to be discussing next week. We're going to be reading chapters 21, 22, and 23.
1: Yeah, and I'm excited to to get into this third part. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. You can find us on social media and at our website. All the links to that is in our episode descriptions. You can also go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash geekbetweenthelines to join our wonderful patrons in some great book club discussions we're having on The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Our patrons also have access to parts of our episode that we cut for time. So if you want to hear more of our discussion of these chapters or the previous chapters, you can go on to Patreon and access those. We want to thank Kimberly the pastel at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! Bye.